Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you folks this uh, Lord's Day morning. And hopefully you, you still have the, the notes from last week. And then there's a one-page edition uh, that goes along with that. And if you don't have it, there's some copies over here on the corner. And uh, so this morning I want to encourage you to turn, if you would, to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. And I'm going to read this, uh, the entirety of this psalm in your hearing. It's 18 verses, and as I am reading it, you might wonder, what in the world does this have to do with assurance of salvation? And the answer is, it's cited on more than one occasion in a confession related to the subject of assurance of salvation. And the goal this morning is to try to get to this and spend a little bit of time and and see the connection uh, to this particular theme, and I, I hope that will be helpful to your thinking process. So, um, to begin with, uh, Psalm chapter 88, beginning in verse 1, down through verse uh, 18. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles and my life is drawn near to Sheol. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I've become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have Remove my acquaintances far from me. You've made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I've spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They've surrounded me like water all day long. They've encompassed me altogether. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. And let us pray. Father, we thank you this uh, morning that we can come before a God that is pure and glorious and all-wise and all-knowing and and sovereign and good and merciful. And so we we do thank you that we can... um, fellowship together in thee and we thank you for the richness and the depth and the beauty of the fellowship that we have in you in your precious son we thank you for his work in our behalf on the cross and and we thank you for the the joy and the preciousness of of union with him and sharing the life of christ with one another And, and we thank you for that and i we pray these moments for the, uh, the leading and the help of your Holy Spirit uh, to be a help to those who are here this morning. I pray our consideration uh, would be um, honoring to thee, and I pray it would be instructive to our own minds as we think about this particular issue of assurance of salvation. I pray it would be helpful to us, and so I commit our time to you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
just a kind of brief uh, review here. This is, I think, the third lesson on the subject of the assurance of salvation. And it deals uh, with the issue of can I know that I am saved? Can I know that I am converted? And we have indicated, uh, as you can tell from your notes here, the confession has four paragraphs. So it's a fairly short chapter. Uh, the first paragraph, two main points, uh, the reality of false assurance, then the certainty of true assurance. And paragraph two deals with the basis of true assurance, the basis of true assurance. Then uh, paragraph three, the attaining of assurance. And paragraph four, hindrances to the experience of true assurance. And we have noted uh, multiple references uh, to First John. That that book by itself is a very helpful book to read. All four paragraphs, there's references from First John. So it's just a very helpful book to read as it relates to this particular theme. And we've noticed a, a good title for it is Test of Life. And then a drawing from James Montgomery Boyce, that can be broken down into uh, a doctrinal test, the right belief, a moral test has to do with ethical or ethical life, and then social test, uh, loving one another. And then we've also seen um, the centrality of the Holy Spirit in, the, in, the, in this area of um, assurance of salvation. It's important to walk by the Spirit, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then also the priority of the conscience. Spend quite a bit of time, have several verses in your notes related to that. And the importance also of diligence, Second um, Peter chapter 1, verse 10. We'll touch on that just a little bit this morning. And then um, if you go to, um, we've also looked at Matthew 7, 21 to 23, um, which really brings out the theme of obedience as it relates to assurance of salvation. And we pointed out that, um, uh, that that's taught throughout a Holy Scripture. It's perfectly modeled, that is, obedience is perfectly modeled in the life of Christ and becoming a Christian is an act of obedience. So what I want to do this morning is kind of flow through the notes, and then there's, there's kind of be three main areas of emphasis. Number one, I want to just look at some examples of assurance from the Scriptures. Then I touch just a little bit more on the importance of, of diligence and working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but especially from Second Peter chapter 1, not from Philippians. Um, and then, uh, as we have time here, just a few thoughts related to the psalm that I read here, Psalm chapter 88. So if you go to the third page of your notes, third page of your notes, um, and uh, number one, um, there is a false assurance of salvation which unregenerate men sometimes indulge, in which they are deceived, and in which shall finally be disappointed. And we'll, we won't look up these verses, we've dealt with, with both of them. Uh, a helpful quote by Sam Waldron, There may be uh, hypocrites and temporary believers who presumptuously think they are Christians, we must beware of the danger of presumption. This should make us cautious, but it should not make us skeptical. Uh, we must not allow the danger of presumption to make us err in the direction of Rome and others who deny the possibility of assurance. Then number two, and this is this this number two is a quote from Waldron. The burden of the confession is to assert the reality that true believers may have assurance in this life. Uh, so when we're kind of all through with this study and what was it about or what this chapter is about, um, it's, to, it's to make the point that we can have assurance of salvation, and, and that's a good thing. Now, the text I have listed here, I believe we've, we've spent a little bit of time in all of these. So what I want to do in, in this connection before we look at the, at the next point is uh, just uh, two or three examples of assurance from the Bible. And, and the first one that I have is if you turn to Psalm chapter 73, if you're still in Psalm 88, just a few chapters back, and uh, two or three uh, helpful examples of assurance from salvation. And, and Psalm ch chapter 73, I think, is a very helpful one 
um, because it's one who was uh, really struggling with uh, the prosperity of the wicked. And so I'll just uh, read part of this to kind of refresh your memory. Psalm chapter 73, in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then he goes on to explain this. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued. Excuse me, they are they're plagued. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They, they've set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue parades through the earth. Um, verse 11, they, they say, how does God know? Is there, is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they have increased in wealth. And then surely in vain, uh, I've kept my heart pure uh, and, and washed my hands in innocence. Uh, I've been stricken, I have been stricken all day and chastened every morning. So he's just telling it like it is from his own perspective. And we may have had the same kind of experience. You look at this world and you think God is good. God is providential. And often people that are extremely wicked are successful in this life. And you're like, what's the deal? What's going on here? And that, that was his problem, the prosperity of the wicked. And he even began to question his own uh, pursuit of godliness. In vain, I've kept my heart pure. And then the, the, the turning point, of course, is when he hears from God. In verse 17, until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. They're, they're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you, you will despise their form. And so, so he hears from God, and, and he, he, this is a, an eternal perspective um, that, he, that he gains here. So he's changed by the power of the truth. And then his whole demeanor has changed, beginning in verse 24. Uh, notice, um, with your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. That sounds like assurance to me. Uh, with your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Then notice verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So especially verse 24 and 26, uh, sound this note of assurance. And I thought this, he's a helpful example because he was in a very difficult situation. And the change point, of course, as it always is, is to hear from God and to be enlightened with the truth of, as to what, what is really going on. So he's a good example of assurance, salvation, of assurance of salvation, I believe, in the midst of those kind of struggles. And then a similar example, not quite the same. If you turn to Job chapter 19, Job chapter 19, I think he's another helpful example of assurance of salvation. Job chapter 19, I want to get to verse 25, but it's helpful to back up to verse 19. Job chapter 19, then if you look at verse... Um, 19 of chapter 19. This is where he's at at this point in time. All my associates abhor me, and those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, pity me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does, and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Then verse 24 that with an iron stylus and, and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Then he says this in verse 25. The next two verses are, are, are the point. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, 
And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. And then he says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my, my flesh, I shall see God. So if, if, you're, if you're reading through this, it's kind of like a light goes on here in the midst of all this pain. And he, there's this assurance that he has of, of being with God forever. And if we ask the question, well, what do you think, what was the key in, in Job's life to this? I think it's back in, in chapter 1 and verse 8, God's description of him where the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. I I found that to be a very helpful verse because there was nobody like Job. What is it that distinguished him? Two things. He feared God and he turned away from evil. That's the kind of man that he was. And in the the most difficult circumstances that you can imagine, he has this assurance of, of salvation. Another example would be the Apostle Paul, and you could actually go, go to several verses to make the point, but turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and um, verse 7, then especially verse 8, and much of what the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would indicate he had assurance of salvation, but I, I think these are, are uh, some helpful verses, as you're aware. This is the very last letter that he wrote. Um, with martyrdom kind of looming over him. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, he says, um, I, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In, in verse 8 he says this, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to have loved his appearing. So there is this assurance at this point in Paul's life on, on the, this future day of meeting the Lord. And, and, and one key here that we've touched on, I, I think it's significant, back in uh, chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. So I decided I weave that back into it here. He can say at the end of his life, he has this assurance of salvation. And it's based on the fact that he can look back on his life and realize he's kept a clear conscience. And so the, the two, as we have already noted, are very closely related. And then one other example, if you turn way back to uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, 2 Kings chapter 20, um, and the, the example I'm, I'm thinking of here is from uh, Hezekiah, uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, and it's in the context of his prayer, 2 Kings chapter 20, and then verses 1 through 3. Just another example of assurance of salvation. So 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, And notice how he prays, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So he had, when he, when he goes, it's similar to Paul, when he goes to pray this prayer, he has this assurance of soul in, in praying of how he has lived before the being of God. So those are just some, uh, some helpful examples, I think, of assurance of salvation from the Bible. So now, okay, back to um, your, your notes, number three. Um, number three, the assertion of the confession in paragraph two is that assurance, genuine assurance, is infallible. And Waldron has a good comment here. The term infallible comes from two Latin words, which mean uh, literally not deceiving, that is not liable to mistake or deception, incapable of error, not liable to fail. 
The confession is asserting that there is an assurance of salvation which will not deceive us, about which we cannot be mistaken, which goes beyond probability. This should reassure the one who says, I want assurance, but I am fearful of being mistaken and deceiving myself. There is an assurance of salvation, which you may have, which will not deceive you, which is infallible. And then the basis of this infallibility, in part, um, is, um, no, number one, the divine promises of salvation. So it's knowing and resting on the divine promises of Scripture. Um, Charles Hodge wrote, faith includes trust. Trust rests upon the divine truth of the promises and in turn supports hope and the fullness of hope is assurance. So there's kind of a chain of thought there, but it starts with the promises of God and resting and trusting in the promises of God. And then uh, secondly, uh, this assurance rests upon the inward evidence of those graces unto which the promises are made. And again, we've looked at all these texts of Scripture, so I won't, I won't, we won't go back to those. And then thirdly, this assurance rests upon the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. So that's, we've looked at that as well. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit bearing witness in our soul that we are children of God. Okay, then number four, um, paragraph three of the confession speaks to the following issues. Um, the difficulty of attaining assurance. The main point seems to be um, that not everyone attains infallible assurance the moment he truly believes in Christ. This implies, of, cor of course, that some may and that some do attain assurance immediately or very soon after they believe. This is, a, this is a great truth of one of the glories of the gospel. Men may repent, believe, go down to their house knowing they are justified as the example of the Philippian jailer shows. But the main point of the confession is that this is not every Christian's experience. Saving faith and infallible assurance are not so much the same thing that you cannot have one without the other. The Bible implies this when it treats faith and knowing that one is a Christian as different things. And when true Christians are urged to make their calling and election sure by adding to their faith other graces, 2 Peter 1, 5-10, it's a fact of Christian experience that many have every reason to believe that they became Christians sometime before they attained a prevailing assurance of salvation. The author is one such Christian. And that may have been some of your experiences. You may have been a Christian for a period of time before you had assurance of salvation, before you were able to kind of dig deep in some of the, the texts that, um, that helped to promote this. Um, the, the provision for attaining assurance here, the, the Spirit of God, means of grace, and then the, the duty of attaining assurance. And here I want you to turn, if you would, back to Second Peter chapter 1. I know we've touched on this, but just a few uh, related thoughts here this morning. Back to Second Peter chapter 1, and the theme here is that kind of the duty and or the diligence of attaining assurance. Um, and, and, and notice here especially uh, verse 5 of Second Peter chapter 1. Um, well, verse, verses 3 and 4, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Then verse 5, Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and your moral excellence knowledge. 
Um, so the idea here that the, for, the, for this reason in verse 5 is because of what we have been given. That's what's brought out at verses 3 and 4. And then the idea here of applying all diligence, the, the lexicon that I use, uh, it says in reference to this word translated applying, um, it, it's used word, with a word that, that means diligence. It expresses the idea of bringing in every effort. The word translated diligence contains the idea of, of earnestness or eagerness. Uh, as one put it, it's a warning against sluggishness and self-indulgence in the spiritual life. And this is the additional note that I gave you this morning, the one page from Thomas Brooks. Um, and he speaks directly to this particular issue, so I thought this was helpful. So um, he puts it like this. Um, the Greek word translated diligence signifieth two things. All possible haste and speed, all manner of seriousness and intention in doing, make it your main business, your chiefest study, your greatest care to make your calling and election sure, saith the apostle. When this is done, your all is done. Till this be done, there is nothing done. And to show the necessity, utility, excellency, and possibility of it, the, the apostle puts, in, uh, puts a rather upon it. Wherefore, the rather give all diligence to make your calling and election sure, or as, is, as it is in the original, firm or stable. It's the one thing necessary. It is of internal and eternal concernment to make firm and sure work for your souls. Assurance is a jewel of that worth, a pearl of that price, that he that will have it must work and sweat and weep and wait to obtain it. He must not only use diligence, but he must use all diligence. Not only dig, but he must dig deep before he can come to this golden mine. Assurance is that white stone, that new name, that hidden manna, that none can obtain but such as labor for it as for life. Assurance is such a precious gold that a man must win it before he can wear it. Win gold and wear gold is a language both of heaven and of earth. The riches, honors, languages, favors of this world cannot be obtained without much trouble and travel, without rising early and going to bed late. And do you think that assurance, which is more worth than heaven and earth, can be obtained by cold, lazy, heartless services? If you do, you do but deceive your own souls. There are five things that God will never sell at a cheap rate. Christ, truth, his honor, heaven, and assurance. He that will have these must pay a good price for them or go forever without them. So a few thoughts by Brooks there on, the, on this theme of, um, of diligence. And then uh, duty, uh, the duty of assurance, I, I think reflects the import of verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Um, so verse, verse 10 was helpful in this respect. And, and this section directly serves uh, the issue of, of assurance. In fact, Simon Kistemaker in his commentary entitles verses 10 and 11, Assurance. And again, Thomas Brooks says, The Lord hath in much mercy and love propounded in his word the ways and means whereby believers may obtain a well-grounded assurance of their everlasting happiness and blessedness, uh, therefore, and be obtained. Um, and then it also brings out here the, the means of attaining this assurance. For as long as you practice these things, uh, you will never stumble. So the duty of attaining assurance, then the means of attaining assurance is to practice these things. What things? 
It's the virtues that are listed in verses 5 through 7. So the means of attaining assurance is the practicing of the virtues that are listed in verses 5 through 7. And we are able to do that because of the provision that is made for us is found in verses 3 and 4. The supply of these virtues that has been granted to us. And um, so that there's several virtues that are listed here. And let me just touch bases on, on two that are very helpful. The first one is, is faith. Um, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. So all these virtues uh, presuppose faith. And um, faith can be understood in different ways. Um, I, I think here it's, it's subjective faith. It is it's trust. First of all, it's trust in Christ. Then it's continuing trusting and relying on the being of God and relying on his promises. So it's not like uh, objective faith, the faith once delivered to the saints is a body of truth, but in subjective faith, it's the act of trusting God, trusting his person, <laughs> trusting his, his promises. Kind of an older commentator, um, Alexander Nesbitt, wrote, Saving faith, which grips Christ for pardon and strength, and daily flies to him for both, must be held fast and renewed in the exercise of it by all that would thrive in any other grace or be fit for any duty. Uh, if either we lose the grips of faith or do not frequently renew them, we can thrive in nothing. Therefore, is faith made the first stone in the spiritual building in which all the rest are to be added. So you can consider some of these other virtues at your own leisure. The first one is moral excellence. It springs from faith. And it's the root of these particular virtues. And as you and I or any Christian practice practice them, that's the means of attaining true assurance of of salvation. So uh, now I just, I know we're we're, we're moving along here, but um, turn if you would back now to Psalm chapter 88. Psalm chapter 88, and just we'll touch on this a little bit. Psalm chapter 88, as it relates to assurance of salvation, uh, there's two or three thoughts here. Um, one would just simply be about. Um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't obviously I don't know what effect it had on you when I read it. It's a dark psalm, and uh, some have said it, it's the gloomiest psalm of all. It, it, it's the darkest psalm. So you read that, it's like, what has this got to do with the assurance of salvation? Well, it's mentioned three different times in this, in this chapter on the confession to substantiate or support statements, especially paragraph three and four. So at least the framers of the confession saw it as being helpful and having a direct bearing on assurance of salvation. Let me just kind of flesh this out a little bit. Uh, in paragraph three, um, the, the first point um, in regard to assurance is this infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties uh, before he be partaker of it, um, so it's for some assurance does not does not come. And we touched on this does not come immediately. Does not come easily. And and this psalm uh, really in its entirety, it's about difficulties. It's about um, that the author is experiencing um, in chapter. Let's see in. Um, Psalm 88, then verse 3, first part of verse 3, my soul has had enough troubles. Then verse 14, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? So that is kind of where he's at. Then paragraph 4 of the confession reads, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers, many ways um, shaken and diminished and intermitted as by negligence in presenting of it, excuse me, in preserving of it by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit and and by some sudden or vehement temptation. And then then it says this, confession says this, or by God's withdrawing 
the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Psalm 88 is one of the psalms that is used to undergird that particular point, and that certainly seems to be the case. In verse 14, he feels like the reject, excuse me, like the Lord has rejected him, even though in verse 1 he calls him the God of my salvation. But in verse 14, he, he feels like he's been rejected. In verses 9 and 13, he's praying, but without any apparent result. Notice verse 9, my eye has wasted away because of affliction. I've called upon you every day, O Lord. I've spread my hands out to you. I've spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. So paragraph four ends with the words, and by which in, um, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Now, that's what the paragraph in the confession says. And you might look at this psalm and, and, and think, well, how does this psalm support one from utter despair? I mean, how, how does it do that? Uh, Derek Kidner wrote, the darkness deepens. There is no sadder prayer in the Psalter. H.C. Uh, Leupold wrote, an agonized outcry. Uh, on one matter, at least, all commentators who deal with this psalm are fully agreed. It's the gloomiest psalm found in the scriptures. Expressed a bit more accurately, there appears to be no relief from the dark hopelessness that marks the psalm, though the writer may have earnestly praised to God. So, so where does the support come from, from utter despair? Well, number one, in spite of all this, he regards, he regards himself, he addresses God as the God of his salvation. That's how it starts. So that's how he thinks. He addresses the God of the Bible as the God of his salvation. Secondly, he regards these circumstances, as dire as they are, as being directed by the hand of God. Notice verse 6. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places in the depths. I'm in this pit, and you put me there. Uh, verse 7, your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Verse 8, you, you have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me, um, excuse me, you have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and, and cannot go out. So he regards his circumstances um, as, as something that, that is being directed by the hand of God. It sounds a little bit like Job here. Third, in, in spite of the darkness, he perceives himself to be... Um, to be one that has not rejected God himself. He feels that way, but he himself has not rejected God. Notice verse 9. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread my hands out to you. Verse 13. But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. And verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. So the psalm fits the profile here of many who are they're, they're truly concerned about the, their soul, and yet they're entertaining thoughts that God has rejected them. And then number four, this is kind of a helpful thought. Um, experience a sense of rejection with no clear awareness of unconfessed sin. Experience a sense of rejection with, with no sense of what have I done. There's no sin that I'm not dealing with. Provides one with a point of messianic identification. It provides one with a point of messianic identification. The, the person here, Heman, feels like he's been forsaken by God. And Plummer, in his work on the Psalms, makes reference to uh, another who regards it as prophetic and calls it the lamentation of Messiah. We must admit with several learned men that many verses um, do particularly suit the man of sorrows, as a quote from Luther. Now, so some, some conclusions here that might be uh, helpful. Number one, 
doubting one's salvation can be can be a function of extreme and repetitive adverse circumstances. It can be in, uh, the, the function of extreme, um, repetitive, and adverse circumstances. Um, and um, we're not told here specifically what Heman's affliction was. It is, some think it was sickness, some think it was leprosy. Others have observed that the lack of an exact identification of whatever his malady was allows it to have many applications, kind of like Paul's thorn in the flesh. But it, it is certainly severe. Notice again, verse 9, my eye has wasted away because of affliction. And verse 15 would suggest that it's perpetual. I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Leupold wrote this. He says it might be possible that here, as often elsewhere in the Old Testament, extreme suffering had brought the light of faith to a very low point in the heart of the afflicted person. And that such afflicted persons often spoke out of this low ebbing of faith. And he says, affliction can dim faith. Affliction can dim faith. Well, secondly, doubting one's salvation, what we learn here, doubting one's salvation should not diminish but increase the frequency or intensity of prayers. That's one of the things that we learn here. Doubting one's salvation should not diminish but increase the frequency and the intensity of prayers. He, uh, Heman is really admirable here for he's praying. He's praying like Jacob. He's not going to let God go in, in, in verse 2, in verse 9, in verse 13. He continues to pray in spite of this, this gloominess that he is in. Number three, a final observation I would make with regard to this psalm. It's based upon the fact that it is dark. Uh, we may not really like the language or the sentiments which are expressed here. We might even wonder uh, what, what's the value here. But my observation will be it provides a point of identification and therefore comfort and hope for those who are experiencing a, a severe struggles with assurance of salvation. I think that's, that's kind of the main point I wanted to make here. It provides a point of identification and therefore because it provides a point of identification, there's comfort and hope for those who are going through the exact same thing. It's kind of like a spiritual, not misery loves company, but misery needs company. Is there anybody that's going through what I'm going through? Is there anybody that's experiencing this? And the answer is yes, and it's in the Bible. His name is Heman. This is what he went through. So, so if a Christian in their heart of hearts is, is weighted down in despondency, they may receive advice from many well-meaning people. They can read this psalm that's inspired of God, and it reveals a real-life account of one who's had the same kind of issues as going through the same thing. Um, and and so, so what to many might be a, a negative aspect of this psalm, namely that there's no resolution. I, I, I mean, it does not end on a high note. And, and a lot of people might see this is a, this is a terrible thing. Um, there's no peace that comes. All, all there is is crying out and praying. Um, but if, if this diagnosis fits one's case, then it's a great encouragement. Because all I can do is continue to pray and seek God and resolve not to reject him, even though I feel like he has rejected me. Leupold puts it like this. A number of writers point out that it is a good thing that this psalm has found a place in the book. Because otherwise, one experience that men uh, who fear God may have would not be reflected in a book which seems to reckon with all the possibilities that may be met with in life's stormy voyage. Prayer usually 
um, usually um, betrays relief to the afflicted, excuse me, brings relief to the afflicted soul sooner or later. Here, this is apparently not the case. So you, you, you read this particular psalm, and at first you might think, this has absolutely nothing to do with assurance of salvation. But for the person that is going through this, it's got everything to do with assurance of salvation because there's somebody else that has gone through the exact same thing and it's in there for that reason. So anyway, there's Psalm 88 that relates to uh, assurance of salvation and uh, hopeful. Uh, I, I, don't, I hope we don't need it soon, but it's there. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the, the reality and the glory of assurance of salvation. We thank you that you and your, and your goodness and your providence has, has provided for many, many, many different circumstances. And I, I pray that you would take what we have considered this morning and make application to our own heart for your honor and your glory. I, I pray for um, each one here that you who know our hearts, Lord, you would make the, the right application to our hearts for the good of our souls, and we do pray uh, that you would prepare our, our hearts for a time of precious worship and praise and adoration as we gather together. Uh, might it be uh, honoring to you, and might it be precious to our own souls, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.